0: Episode 76, Andrew Jackson and the Indians. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to a short walk through our long history, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. So I've been meaning to mention here in the narration of this podcast that I have a website, and an email address that's just for the podcast. I made a point to talk about it a while back when I first made the website, but I haven't mentioned it in a while. So if you look at the summary of the podcast on your podcast app, you'll see the URL of the website and the email address, but here they are. The website is www.shortwalkthroughhistory.com and the email is shortwalkthroughhistory at gmail.com. So if you have a comment, please feel free to drop it at shortwalkthroughhistory at gmail.com. All right, in this episode, we are going to talk about Andrew Jackson, who is one of the most interesting men to have ever been the president of the United States. In fact, if it wasn't for his harsh treatment of the Indians, I mean, if he hadn't done that, he would be in the running for one of the most popular presidents ever. And by that, I don't just mean popular. There were a lot of things that he did as president, that strongly agreed with the original principles that the U.S. was founded on—principles that the Constitution tried to institutionalize, but that were later ignored by the growing federal bureaucracy in Washington. And that bureaucracy is something that Jackson strongly opposed, which I guess is why I kind of like him. Andrew Jackson was born in either North Carolina or South Carolina, but no one is quite sure. He was born way out in the country, in the Waxhaws region, but no one knows exactly where he's from, what exact town he was born in, and at the time, that area was kind of disputed as to whether it was part of North Carolina or South Carolina. So both states kind of claim him as a native son. It's kind of like how during Barack Obama's presidential campaign, there was a dispute as to whether Kenya was part of the United States or not. Anyway, Jackson always said that he was from South Carolina, and he was apparently born on March 5th of 1767. There's not a lot of records about his youth, but he was apparently self-educated and very bright. During the Revolutionary War, he and his family were actually captured by the British. His mother and his two brothers died during their captivity at this time, and it left him with a lifelong hatred of the British. At one point during his own captivity, He apparently refused a command to shine the boots of a British officer who struck him across the face with the butt of a sword, and that left a permanent scar on his face. So yeah, he didn't like the British, and that's going to come back to haunt them a bit in New Orleans in the War of 1812. Before he turned 19, he had become a lawyer in North Carolina, and he was admitted to the North Carolina Bar. Sometime around the time that the U.S. adopted the Constitution, that's 1787, Jackson moved west to Tennessee, settling in the area that would eventually become Nashville. He apparently tried for a while to be a country singer, but he went back to being a lawyer after he couldn't land a major record deal there in Nashville. Anyway, while he was in Nashville, he married Rachel Donaldson Robards, the daughter of a local colonel, and they settled there in Nashville. Jackson was successful enough as a lawyer that he was able to purchase a plantation, which he later renamed the Hermitage. Jackson, on this plantation, owned several slaves, and he does end up throughout his career being a supporter of slave states. Jackson and his wife lived in Nashville for nine years, And then in 1796, he joined the territorial convention that was tasked with creating a constitution for Tennessee, which was a necessary preliminary step for them to join the Union. After that constitution was drafted, and Tennessee was admitted as a state to the Union, Jackson was sent to Washington as Tennessee's first U.S. representative. Tennessee came in as a slave state, by the way. Jackson served a term as a representative, then he was elected as a senator. He apparently didn't like it, though, and resigned after a year and went back to Tennessee, where he was put in charge of the state militia. This was the position he held when war broke out with Great Britain in 1812. So he joined the U.S. Army to fight against the British, remember, didn't like them, following a general wave of anti-British patriotism. Since he was already in command of the Tennessee militia, he was given command of some U.S. troops as well. And this is where his legacy begins to get a bit clouded. In 1813 and 14, Jackson led a group of U.S. soldiers, plus a confederation of Indians, against the Red Stick Indian tribe, eventually defeating them and killing most of the men of the Red Stick tribe. The women and children of the tribe were distributed throughout Jackson's allied Indian tribes. This kind of ends the Red Stick as a nation. Then, in June of 1814, Jackson, with the approval of President Madison, forced all of the Creek Indians to surrender their territory, which was about 12 million acres of land. That's 23,000 square miles to the U.S. Now, that's a lot of territory. For comparison, South Carolina, the state, is only about 30,000 square miles, so just a bit bigger than the area that the Creek had to surrender. That's about the same size as actually West Virginia. The Creek Indians were forced to move to a new home, a reservation west of the Mississippi. Now, this was the beginning of a group of forced displacements that took place under the administration before Jackson, and also under Jackson's administration when he becomes the president. And about 60,000 Indians from the southern part of the eastern U.S. were forcibly displaced to new lands to the west of the Mississippi, and many of them were later moved even further west. The Creek, the Choctaw, and other tribes were forced to walk, though trains were available, from Georgia to Oklahoma, a distance of several thousand miles. Almost a third of the Indians died on the journey. About 5,000 Creek alone died in the trip. And then later, their land in Oklahoma got squeezed and squeezed by more and more settlement until Oklahoma eventually became a state, and much of the Indian reservation land there was permanently lost to settlers. Again, the federal government clearly was not honoring its treaties with the Indian nations. Andrew Jackson, who was the U.S. Army General in the area at the time, apparently approved of the forced relocation of the Indians. So, if this was all there was to Andrew Jackson, he would probably be seen today as kind of a villain. But there is a lot more to his story, some of which makes it hard to see him as a villain. Unless you're an Indian, of course, then you're probably justified in seeing him that way. After the Indian battles that were part of the War of 1812, Jackson was assigned to command the U.S. forces around New Orleans. The British were trying to capture New Orleans and control the trade in and out of the Mississippi. Jackson organized the defense of the city, and he played a big part in getting the pirates, led by Jean Lafitte, to help in the defense of the city. Remember, as I mentioned in the episode on the War of 1812, by the time the British landed at New Orleans and began their attack, the war had already ended, and a peace treaty had already been signed. But that news didn't get to New Orleans until a couple of weeks after the battle. So, in the first engagement of the Battle of New Orleans, Jackson led a successful nighttime raid against a British outpost south of New Orleans. And then he and his men fell back to a defensive line that they had built along a canal. They had dug out the canal to make it deeper, and they built a fortified ridge behind it. It was a strong defensive position, and they called it Line Jackson. Sounds like a linebacker's name, doesn't it? Jackson told his men, Here we shall plant our stakes, and we shall not abandon them until we drive these red-coated rascals into the river, or into the swamp. The British, for their part, thought that the ragtag defenders would collapse and run, so they attacked the ridge directly. Wave after wave of British troops were killed, including several of the colonel's. General Packenham, the British commander, was also killed by cannon fire, and then the British began to flee. In the end, the British had over 2,000 casualties, including three generals and seven colonels, compared to less than 100 total casualties for the defenders. It was a stunningly one-sided American victory, and it made Andrew Jackson a national hero. It was from this battle that he got his nickname, Old Hickory one of his subordinates, not entirely as a compliment, described him as unyielding as a piece of Old Hickory, and the nickname stuck. Honestly, it's a pretty good nickname. Not as good as Charles the Hammer, who we talked about way back in episode 29, but still, Old Hickory is a good nickname. After the War of 1812, Jackson went back to Tennessee, until in 1824, several of his friends suggested that he run for president. At first he said no, but his friends and supporters convinced him that he had the support and they encouraged him to run based on the idea that the city of Washington was corrupt and it needed some new blood and it needed an outsider to set things right. And that was totally the kind of thing that motivated Jackson, so he went ahead and ran. Now, previous to this, all of the presidents of the United States Had been someone you could count as one of the founding fathers. The president from 1816 to 1824 was James Monroe, who I mentioned in the episode about the Monroe Doctrine. Now, going backwards from him, the presidents had been Monroe, Madison, Jefferson, Adams, and Washington, who had all been founding fathers and who were all part of the political establishment on the East Coast. Most of them were from either Virginia or Massachusetts. Monroe had been in the federal government since Jefferson's administration. But Andrew Jackson was from Tennessee, and he was not part of the East Coast federal government establishment. That, plus the name recognition of him as a war hero, made him very popular as a candidate. So the main person he was running against in 1824 was John Quincy Adams, who was obviously the son of John Adams. And John Quincy Adams had been part of the federal government from back before the federal government had even existed. He was, in other words, a lifelong politician. Now, that doesn't mean he was bad, and he's honestly remembered as a very good, diligent person, much like his father. But many people in the day saw him as just being a permanent politician and lots of people wanted something new. So when the votes were counted in the 1824 election, Jackson had gotten a majority of the popular vote, but he hadn't won enough of a majority of the electoral votes. Adams came in second, and the other two candidates were distant third and fourth. Since there was no clear winner, the vote was handed to the House of Representatives to decide where the Speaker of the House, who was Henry Clay, and he was also the fourth-place candidate, Henry Clay got the third-place candidate and himself to throw their support behind Adams, and Clay also campaigned behind the scenes to get the rest of the representatives to vote for Adams. So John Quincy Adams got elected as the sixth president, and then he selected, guess who, Henry Clay to be his Secretary of State, which Jackson and his supporters called a corrupt bargain. And they said, this shows what's wrong with Washington and its insiders. Now, despite this, Adams was actually a very good president. And he tried to get several ambitious projects going, including setting up a national university, establishing formal relationships with the newly formed republics that were in South America, that we mentioned last episode, and doing some massive infrastructure projects, including a paved road from Washington all the way to New Orleans, plus several expansions of existing roads and canals. Now, some of these Congress agreed to, but others were shot down. During Adams' administration, two new political parties began to form, with the pro-Adams Northern Party forming the beginnings of the Republican Party, and the pro-Jackson Southern Party forming the Democratic Party. Now, these parties have gone through some transitions since, but these parties replaced the Federalists, the Democratic-Republicans, and the Whigs, which had been the dominant parties of the first 50 years of the United States. In the next election, in 1828, it was again Jackson against Adams. Jackson's supporters did a much better job of publicizing him and playing up the supposed corruption of Washington. Jackson won the election in a landslide with only a few New England states supporting Adams. So Adams became the second one-term president after his father, who was defeated by Jefferson after one term. Now, before I move on to Jackson's presidency, I need to point out that Adams didn't go quietly into the night. Instead, he ran for a seat in the House of Representatives, which he won, and he stayed in the House from 1830 until his death in 1848. He's only one of two presidents who went back into public office, the other being Andrew Johnson, not Andrew Jackson, Andrew Johnson. Adams, interestingly, after his first term, joined a party known as the Anti-Masonic Party, which saw Freemasons as a threat to American democracy, because they thought that Freemasons were secretly controlling the federal government. That idea, oddly enough, is still around today. And, oddly enough, Andrew Jackson was a Mason. So was George Washington and also James Monroe. So maybe the anti-Masons were on to something there. But enough about the Masons controlling the federal government. We all know it's really the Illuminati. And back to Andrew Jackson. Adams refused to attend Jackson's inauguration, making him the second president not to attend his successor's inauguration after... Again, his father, who hadn't attended Jefferson's inauguration. In his inaugural address, Jackson pledged to protect state sovereignty, to remove incompetent bureaucrats, to respect the limits of the presidency, and to treat the Indians fairly. He did most of that, except the Indian part. Now, Jackson began by pretty quickly be trying to root out corruption in the administration And he found several cases of embezzlement and kickbacks, and he managed to cut spending and reduce some of the waste that was already present in federal spending. But early in his first term, several of the southern states extended their jurisdictions into what had been previously Indian lands. This caused a bit of a crisis. Did the states have jurisdiction over land that had been guaranteed to the Indians? who were considered sovereign nations by treaties with the United States? It was a bit of a crisis. The states tried to extend their sovereignty anyway. Now Jackson supported the states against the Indians, despite the fact that the Indians really had treaties with the federal government that guaranteed their lands. In 1830, Jackson signed a law called the Indian Removal Act, which was supposed to be a voluntary process to move the Indians farther west. But in actuality, it was basically enforced at gunpoint by the U.S. Army. Jackson, throughout his administration, consistently sided with the states and the settlers against the Indians. And this increased his popularity with everyone except, of course, the Indians. But they didn't get to vote in elections. So then, in 1832, Jackson won re-election in one of the most one-sided landslides in presidential election history. During Jackson's second term, Jackson managed to eliminate the national debt. He is the only president who has bothered to do that. Our current administration today has allowed the national debt to get to 34 trillion as of this morning, which is an insane amount and probably has mostly gone to corruption anyway, rather than something useful like paving the roads around my house or defending our southern border or anything helpful like that. But Jackson, back in his day, managed to eliminate the U.S. debt, which is kind of amazing. Jackson also ended the Bank of the United States, which was the repository of the national debt but was also a for-profit bank. Jackson saw the bank as basically an unofficial fourth branch of the government, not accountable to the citizens, and run by a group of financial elite. So at first, Jackson tried to add some kind of federal government oversight to the bank, but the bank resisted this. So Jackson vetoed the bill that would have renewed the charter of the bank. This effectively ended the National Bank for a while, though it was later reconstituted as the U.S. Federal Reserve, now known as the Fed. Also, during his second term, Jackson survived the first assassination attempt on a U.S. President. He was walking out of the U.S. Capitol building, and he was attacked by a man named Richard Lawrence, who fired a pistol at Jackson but it misfired. Jackson, who was 67 at the time, started beating Lawrence with his walking stick. We should all carry walking sticks just for this reason. Anyway, Lawrence pulled another pistol, but it misfired as well, and Jackson was unharmed, and his reputation as a tough old stick was amplified. One of the other interesting things that was going on during Jackson's second term was a big increase in the number of U.S. settlers moving into Texas. Texas. At the time, Texas was a loosely held territory of the new country of Mexico, which had won its independence from Spain in 1821. But Mexico, as a new country, was still pretty disorganized. I mean, even today it's pretty disorganized. But in the 1820s, it was even less organized, so the area of Texas was kind of the Wild West. It was frontier. It was ungoverned, even though Mexico claimed it. In 1829... Jackson offered to buy Texas from Mexico, but Mexico didn't want to sell. By 1830, though, there were twice as many American settlers in Texas as there were Mexican settlers, and this led to a bit of tension between the Texans and the Mexicans. We are gonna come back to that in the next episode. But without spoiling the story too much, on the last day of Jackson's presidency, one of his last acts was to formally recognize the Republic of Texas. After Jackson's two terms, the next president was William Henry Harrison, who had also been a general in the U.S. Army. He had fought against the British forces in Canada during the War of 1812. But Harrison died after only a month in office, apparently of a severe chill. Seriously. So he has the record of being the president that was in the office for the shortest amount of time. Harrison was succeeded by his VP, John Tyler. At the time, there wasn't a clear plan of succession that was outlined in the Constitution that accounted for fully the death of a sitting president. But everyone eventually just kind of accepted Tyler as the acting president. But in the subsequent election of 1844, he was defeated, making him the first, but not the last, president who never actually got elected. But back to Andrew Jackson. His legacy, as I said, is kind of mixed, since it's so deeply stained by the way he treated the Indians. Now, to be fair to him, as a populist president, he was in some ways trying to uphold the will of the people, and the people, at least the voting people, wanted to remove the Indians from their lands. But again, there's this fundamental contradiction between the stated values of the new nation and the way it actually behaved, especially in how it treated the Indians. But despite this, Jackson's legacy as an anti-corruption, anti-establishment president is still pretty impressive. He saw that the federal government was already usurping some of the powers that should have been reserved for the states or the people, at least according to the Constitution. Here's a quote from him that I like. But you must remember, my fellow citizens, eternal vigilance by the people is the price of liberty. And you must pay the price if you wish to secure the blessing. Now somewhere since then, we the people have dropped our vigilance and thus we have lost some of these blessings of liberty. I think in terms of how Andrew Jackson affects us today, that this kind of populist pushback against the federal bureaucracy is exactly why Donald Trump became popular. It's not because he's such a great person, as he clearly isn't, but he represents a popular sentiment that the federal government has become corrupt and overstripped its reach and needs to be radically reined in. Now, would Trump actually be able to do that? I don't know. But he represents a growing dissatisfaction with federal overreach. In my mind, it's too bad that this sentiment has been attached to someone like Trump, who is incredibly divisive. And also, I'm not sure that he really truly represents a challenge to the washington status quo like jackson did maybe he does i just don't know it's hard to tell nowadays in any case trump's populist appeal is similar to jackson's they are both seen as outsiders who could clean up the corruption in washington now jackson was in some ways successful in this trump not so much at some point in this short walk we're going to have to come back to trump eventually But wow, we have a lot of ground to cover before we get to that. For now, it's time to leave Washington and, like Davy Crockett, tell Washington, you may all go to hell and I will go to Texas.